Hi, I'm Susanna, and this is The Susanna Gibbs Show. Our next guest is Nick Nicosia. His work is included in permanent collections all over the place, from New York to San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, just to name a few. I refer to him as an artist because he can't be pigeonholed in one genre. If you want to see his works or more about his process and some additional behind-the-scenes footage, go over to our sponsors page, GibbAgencyDallas.com. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Susanna Gibb, owner of Gibb Insurance Services. Yes, I am the same person. We have over 25 years of experience serving Texas families and businesses for all of their home, auto, health, life, and business insurance needs. But because we rebranded two years ago, Google has us on page 10 of their search engine. So any click to our website is a big help. Go to GibbAgencyDallas.com for quotes to learn more about our agency, see the behind the scenes of this podcast, and to tell us what you think of our show. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the show. You've been so fortunate, I think, to have so much success. I mean, do you, was there ever any moment when you're like, oh, I have made it? Or do Right, you- in 1983, 19- when, I, when, when I had a spread in Life magazine. Oh. I went, oh man, I'm a, I'm a, uh, like a household artist. I mean, it lasted about an hour. Because this was, that movement was your stage photographic. Right. Basically, I don't think being an artist ever allows you to feel like I made it, I'm comfortable. I mean, maybe some of the ones that most of us could never relate to um, that have a staff of 200 people, and they're Mm -hmm. basically a company. And they just produce work. And I'm not sure how much the actual artist does, maybe just the idea. And I'm not going to name any names today, although I'd love to, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> only, you want to name one? Only if it's positive. Oh. Well, I mean, I do like this person's work in general, uh, Jeff Koons, but he is not relatable to any other visual artist I know. I mean, the way that the work is produced, the way that it's promoted, um, the number of people working for him, he got, I don't really know the total amount, but something like, you know, a million something when the COVID relief thing was. So it was really like a company. Oh. Yeah. And so it's a different kind of level. And there's a few, of you know, two or three of these people. If you had to describe this staged photographic movement, how would you describe it to somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about? Well, the easiest way is to say that it wasn't a taken photograph. It was a made photograph. And every, in other words, everything that the camera recorded was made up. Or planned. Or planned, exactly. Um, the sets were built. You know, it's, it's basically the same as you would do with a play or a film, motion picture. So there's drawings. Mm-hmm. Then there's actually building of the set. Then making or finding the props, casting it, costuming it. And then at the end, it's a photograph, which is the most anticlimactic part of the whole thing. The actual photograph itself was not as exciting to me as all the stuff that came before it. It's what the staged photographic sort of movement was, was... Um, questioning the information and the reality of a photograph. There was like domestic dramas. Near That's the disaster. one that I remember the yeah. most is yeah. domestic dramas. Right. Following that, I actually felt that it was time to go on location. So the series called Real Pictures was in black and white, and it was 
to appear that I was walking around my neighborhood or walking around a city street and finding these events that I had actually staged, of course, um, and photographed them. And then after a series called Love and Lust, which was after that, I was really a burned out. It was too easy. I wasn't burned out so much as I needed more within my work. What year was this? Uh, this would be like 1989. So the life spread 90. came out in 84? It was like right after the Whitney Biennial, I think. The first Whitney Biennial I, Biannual I was in was 1983. So it, it might have had something to do with that exhibit. How much do you consider the viewer when you're constructing these pieces? Or like what goes into it when you are like coming up with an idea for, just use one of the ones, like domestic drama, for example. Well, I I don't consider the audience. I, and a lot, I, I work intuitively. Ideas just appear. And if I'm, if I feel like it's something I want to follow, you know, to see through, if it's something that I have to do, and whether it fails or works, it doesn't matter. I have to see it through. If an audience responds to it, that's wonderful. But I know that within a series, just like in a motion picture, there are scenes people won't respond to or people that respond to that one, that scene or that, mo- or that piece might respond to a different one. So I do know that within a series of, say, domestic dramas, I think were eight pieces, some of them I just wanted to make and I wanted to exhibit and I knew they weren't going to be re- well received actually in general. Um, and, but they were. Well, the whole series was, yes. Oh, but some pieces were. <clears throat> right. Because there seems to be, it was striking me as I was going through a lot of these pictures was there's, you know, in domestic dramas, it almost feels like you're involved in something that maybe the viewer maybe I'm involved in this scenario that I'm not really supposed to see. And well, then in, well, there's some in real pictures. There's that, the one with the three kids looking at the tree and the little girl is turning back. And again, there's that, that moment of like, are you supposed to be here? Like that's, and I, so I just, right. Are you supposed to be here? Yeah, they're supposed to be there. Well, or am I, spo- am I as the viewer supposed to be here? You yeah, know, am well, I supposed the viewer to be is always supposed to be there. I was still in a motion picture mindset through most of the 80s because that's what my, you know. Those your background was. That's what my training was in. Not that I did a lot with it. And then in 1997, I was, I just couldn't do any more photographs. So I decided I was going to make motion pictures again. And uh, I think the next one was the one you were in. Which that was I did your favorite. For, it was your ne- favorite, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> It was definitely, it was the only, the only thing about that is I spent all the money Neiman's gave me just about to make that damn thing in 35 millimeter motion picture when it could have just been video. I mean, video wasn't as prevalent then though, no, was it? No, it wasn't. And it wasn't very good looking unless no. it was black and white because that little Sony digital camera was really quite good and black and white looked like 16 millimeter. I thought at this point I was just going to become a director. That's it. I was done with, um, with um, visual art, and mm-hmm. I wanted to become a director until I realized I just am better by myself. Oh. <laughs> so the movie I made was a nine-and-a-half-hour real-time drive from Dallas to Santa Fe with three video cameras running full-time. What was part of the reason for leaving Dallas to go to Santa Fe? Weather. 
weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Our children, you know, I've lived here my whole life. I felt that it was time to, for me, and Becky went along with it, thank goodness. I just wanted a different view. I wanted to have a different climate. I felt it was time to meet a new collector base. And at the time, Santa Fe was really Santa Fe was it was hopping. It was hopping for contemporary visual art. And that was because Site Santa Fe was doing these beautiful biennials. Um, contemporary galleries were opening. And then collectors would come there. And Art World, I saw more when I first moved there. I saw more people from New York than I ever saw when I went to New York, basically. They were all coming through Santa Fe. And so I thought that would be a good opportunity to, you know, when you hit mid-career, you start you start looking for things that make mid-career not as difficult as it can be because at that point you're, you know, you're not as exciting as the new young thing. Mm. Did you feel less successful at this time? Not, not right away, but then I think my career kind of died in Santa Fe. Why is that? Because I loved it so much I didn't want to leave and I didn't travel and I didn't nurture my calories. I oh. didn't meet anyone new and then the contemporary art world in Santa Fe just dried up like a prune and then you know it was just time to leave it was you know we were there for 11 years our kids were getting married we knew grandkids were going to come and at some point we would have moved back and it was the best actually it was a way better decision than the move to move there what actually not that's wrong I'm going to only because my work changed. I got to Santa Fe and I went, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want now. Mm. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. It's, and that's where the sculpture and the drawing started coming to the forefront. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the sculptures. When you came back to Dallas, was it the same city you left? No, not anywhere close as far as art goes. And then when I moved back, I still didn't really get it. I didn't understand that anything had changed at all. And I didn't have a gallery because I left that gallery. Someone recommended that I meet this gallerist, Erin Cluley. So she came over a few weeks later, and then she just said, look, I told my husband I'm going to do what I want. I'm gonna, I want to say what I want, and I want to show your work. Let me just say it was probably the best decision I've made in many years because she's just a dream to work with. Uh, my career in Dallas is, has gone really, really well. You used to be able to come to Dallas and you could see the museums and the two galleries. You know, it's only like a half a day and you go to lunch and you're done, right? right. You It takes two to three days. It takes at least two days to see everything now, which is really kind of cool. Do you think the whole, because the arts district was done by the time you got back? What, which arts district well, are you speaking of? Well, I'm talking about the downtown, where it's the building at the end, Booker T, the yeah. theater, the performance hall connecting to the Windspear, the DMA, the Nasher, like the whole way down. Yes, that was all being built while I was gone. Well, however, gone. However, that's not what I think most artists consider the arts district. I mean, yeah, the DMA. The downtown the downtown arts district, I yeah, guess I should Yeah, the said. DMA and the Nasher. The Nasher's killing it. You know, they're doing wonderful things. The DMA, the first show that I saw when I got back was the Pollock show, which was so spectacular. Even people that weren't a fan of Pollock 
you know, fell into this show and just loved it. It was wonderful. So what do you and, consider the arts district? Well, I think where the galleries are. In the design district. That's now the design district, exactly. And um, I love that area. It's changed so much. Yeah. It's still funky, though. It's still funky. Yeah. So now that you mentioned the Nasher, which um, is a great tie-in to your sculpture period, circling back when you gave up photography and you came back to Dallas, that was about the time you switched mediums again? Well, I mean, I didn't give up photography. I just had to find another way to do it. Okay. Another way to incorporate, incorporate it. So basically today, the photographs, the sculpture, and the drawings all work together. Nothing gives me more pleasure than sitting down and making something, physically making it. Do you know what you're going to make when you sit down? I, oh, yeah. When I sit down, I know what I'm going to make, yes. But I don't know when, I don't know when the ideas are going to pop up. And they, or it's it, everything that I do, see, hear, read, all all come together at some point and the idea will just manifest itself and then I'm compelled to make it. And sometimes I throw the thing away. Some, you know, but I'm a little better at that now. Of course, I'm a mature artist. I've been doing it for, what, 40-something years. And so I can really pre-visualize. So I, I know something's going to, to function the way I want it to before I even start it. Do you have such a thing as like right? There's writer's block for writers. Do you ever feel like you struggle with artist block? Where Every just... time you make a piece, you don't think you're going to have another idea. Oh, interesting. And that, but that, but you learn as your as your art matures. You you learn that that isn't going to happen. Mm. I mean, if you're you know as an artist, you're that's all you think about. And people, I say, you know, people artists that say I work all day. They don't go in the studio and work all day. That No one does that. I work in the studio about three hours, but I work all day mm. because I think about it and I look at it and everything is logged mentally or I write it down or I do a drawing of it so that I can remember it later. I think the really, the fun thing about looking at your sculptures at least for me, and you tell me if what you hear other people say, is I never look at your sculptures and think, I could have done that. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I never do. Like sometimes you go into a museum, for example, and you see something and you're like, wow, I could have totally painted that. <laughs> I could have painted that. It's a canvas with yellow. It's a single color of yellow on there. But I never look at your sculptures and I think, man, I could have done that. Mostly I'm like, Wow. How did he come up with that idea? Thank you. Well, my answer to people that say, I could have done that, is yes, you could have done it, but do you know why? Mm. And that takes us back to this whole movement thing. That yellow painting might be an Ellsworth Kelly, and there's a million reasons why he did that against whatever came before him. We're talking about movements. So I support that, mm. you know, and yes, Especially today, there's a lot of stuff that you could do because it seems like everybody's making art and there's there's many things that are considered art that wouldn't have been considered art 25 years ago. Now, there was just an AI painting made. Have you seen this? I have not. 100% AI generated and it has no soul. 
And that's what's great about drawing and sculpture and painting and collaging and putting your hands on the thing is it it has part of the artist. And I can't explain it, but it is beyond the visual. You have to put a little bit of your DNA on there. I mean, my thing is an elephant can make a mark. A cat can make a mark, but it's not art. It's not what I consider high art or high visual art or something that will sustain interest over a long time. What makes an artist? What makes a piece of art? Yeah, there has to be a content and a a reason, I guess. And I think these days people do a lot of gimmicks, and that might have been a gimmick art. Like, I saw someone put paint on a table and then turn the canvas upside down and smash it in there, and that's that's nothing. It has nothing. It has no guts. It has no background. It has no history. It came from nowhere. And um, people exhibit these things, and curators that are of a certain age They accept a lot more art than I would or people back in the 80s ever would. You know, so they accept this thing because when they came up as as in school and curators, they were seeing this gimmicky art, for a better lack of a term. I I know that's sort of derogatory, but I'm not saying it's all that. Because there's some still some, and I don't think, I think people that make this stuff are very serious about what they do. So it's hard to, to be negative about it, but I don't have to like it. No, but it also, it's like so hard for people to get attention. If there's so many artists, what do you do exactly to get out there? Do you make this piece of art that maybe is not? You let's, don't let's, have to make art. Everyone does not have to make art. Like when I lived in Santa Fe, some, you know, a CEO from a major company moved to Santa Fe. They, gray up, they, they grow a gray ponytail. They buy a, a, a welding torch, learn how to weld and put crap together. And then they think that their art is completely equal to yours that you spent 40 years making or, gotcha. or perfecting or, you know, you've done your more than 10,000 hours, so to speak. And the thing that that is wonderful about today for artists is you can make more than what you are pegged at. Mm-hmm. And that, like, I showed um, drawings in 1985 in New York, and I was given grief because I was only supposed to make photographs. And today, everyone, now I am go like, hey, I'm 71, I do whatever the F I want to do. <laughs> You know, but it's accepted now because artists are very talented people, right? They 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 can they can make their work with different materials, and nothing's been better for me. I have I've been thrilled about making drawings and these sculptures. It's just and 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 the fact that people accept them is even greater. I sometimes wonder if if you imagine a piece of tape on a wall in a museum and somebody calls it art. Let's just go in, back into that realm for just a second. Is the fact that I, standing in front of it, have to decide whether I like it as art, whether I accept it as art, bring value to 
talking about art and bringing yeah, up art. Yeah, you don't you don't have to. You can like it or not like it, right? There's no there's no dislike if there's not. But it like. makes me define it as like I accept this as art. Or I accept this as a stupid piece of tape on the wall. Yeah, but there's also um, knowledge of why they put the piece of tape. Yeah, on like the wall. maybe that piece of tape came from some immigrant trying to cross. You know, the real Well, that would be super a lot more interesting than just a piece of tape on the Right, but no one's going to put a piece of tape and not give that kind of um, information. I mean, there was a dead banana for sale for $100,000, you know, and I love that artist, but not that banana. Interesting. You know? Well, let's get to, I I really want to talk to you about Big Hands, which is beautiful and in the Nasher for anybody who hasn't seen it. You have to go check out. So big hands is a humanoid. Why the big hands? It's sort of a perspective exercise. It was an exercise in can I make this thing and make it stand up? Mm. Um, That's always the challenge. I mean, that's the fun part about sculpture is trying to engineer. And it was when so much in my life was going on negatively. Home, kids finances, career. I just wanted everything to stop, Mm -hmm. just stop. And I don't want to give too much information because that's all anybody will see. What is your favorite piece that you, do you have a favorite piece? You know, know, this is the same answer. Probably every artist will tell you, and every filmmaker, it's the piece you're working on. Yeah. Yes. I think the more difficult ones seem to be, have a, have a, a place in your mind as being your favorite only because it was so damn hard to make. Basically, when I look at my, every work before the one I'm working on, I don't know how I made it. I don't know where it came from. I don't know, you know, how the hell did I engineer that and blah, blah, you know, so. How do you feel about going into this next decade, about your next movement, your next piece of work? I'm just making work. I'm making collages again on top of photographs and then re-photographing them. So I've gone all the way back to 1979, basically. If you could go back and you could talk to your younger art self, what would you say? Live cheap. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, don't expect anything. And I've learned that actually in my older time. And my, you know, I did start meditating about 13 years ago when all this bad crap was happening health wise i started reading everything about buddhist meditation and all that and there's this word they use called emptiness and my definition of that is anything and everything can happen but you have no idea when that it's going to take place so i would have just said you know just make your work you know, if it's good and it's just, if it's valid and who determines what's good. I mean, I think seasoned artists and mature curators and stuff, there is something about looking at a work of art and you know without knowing whose it is that it's good. Take, for instance, and I always go back to film, the Coens. Mm-hmm. Something about watching their movies makes me want to go right to the studio. I don't know why. I can't define it, but there's something about their motion pictures that have something that hits me in a spot that I can't define. Interesting. Well, thank you for being here with me. Thanks, it's Susanna. always so fun talking and with you. Great to see you. I know. It's so fun. Thank you. It's cool. Thanks. 
On our next episode of The Susanna Gibbs Show, we have Dean Weaver, Beer Cicerone, who just opened our newest brew pub in the Cedars of Dallas. My mouth is already watering. If you'd like to connect with us, go to GibbAgencyDallas.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you.